I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, instructive, and merciful word to our hearts and our souls and our minds and our walk. Father, we draw near to you now. And God, thus we know you draw near to us by your Spirit. In us who believe, And in our midst is the congregation of those who believe. And so in your presence, help me teach what's here. Help me unfold what you've plainly given. Oh, we would see Jesus as our high priest. Oh, that we would know that he shed his blood for me. May none be those who cannot say that. So do it to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Okay, for many, many weeks now, this author has mercifully bombarded us with the exhortation and the importance of persevering in faith by means of the Word of God. And now this morning, he adds that other crucial aspect to our lives that will make us or break us. A lively, desperate prayer life, which is essential in enduring, in persevering, in faith to the end. The author, we have seen over the weeks, has made it clear that our failure or any professing Christian's failure to endure through trials and thus they abandon Christ, he's made it clear that that's the seed that is sown on the rocky soil that Jesus talked about in Mark 4. And he said it refers to those who, quote, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. 
then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And so this author says to us, God has given you the means to endure. It's the Scripture. It's the Word of God which is living and active and powerful. It cuts. It convicts. It judges your thoughts and your intentions. It is alive. It is living. And not just that, but as we see this morning, He's given us prayer. Meaning He's given us access as sinners to the Father. In mercy. In grace. This is a highly encouraging passage. You've got to remember the original readers, Jewish Christians, they were on the verge of going back to Judaism. Of going back to temple, sacrificial, worship, and thus abandoning Christ, the high priest. And the author has given this extended exhortation using Israel under Moses as his example, saying they failed to enter God's rest, picturing salvation, and they failed because of unbelief. And therefore, he says to them, and by implication to all Christians down through the ages who profess Christ, be diligent to enter that rest. And if we will respond, therefore, in obedience of faith to God's Word, it'll convict. It, it'll, it'll cut, it'll expose our sin, and it'll cause faith in God's promises to grow. In other words, it is, it is foolish to think we can hide our sin from God. Remember, right before verse 14, our, our text this morning, verse 13 was clear. No creature, nobody, is hidden from God's sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. 500 years ago, the great reformer Martin Luther commented on verse 13 flowing into verse 14, saying this, after terrifying us, the Apostle now comforts us. After pouring wine into our wound, he now pours in oil. So, so, so let's feel the flow in its context. He, he's been saying, fear unbelief. 
Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Let the Word of God work on you, convict you, expose you, cut you up. And now, he says, come boldly. Come with great confidence to God with all of that. Instead of trying to hide because of our undoneness, our brokenness, and our sin, the author says we should draw near to Jesus, our sympathetic high priest who has made access for us to the throne. For those who are in Christ, that throne is not a place of fear but it's rather a place and a throne of grace. So in our passage, verses 14 to 16 of Hebrews 4, there are two commands that we are given. One is in verse 14. Let us hold fast, meaning firm, our confession. The second one is verse 16. Let us then with confidence, here's the, here it is, now here's the command, draw near to the throne of grace. And both of these commands don't just come out of the blue. Both of them are rested on truth that you're supposed to know the truth of who Jesus is in verse 14 look at it here's the truth since then we have a great high priest who is passed through the heavens Jesus the son of God okay there's the foundation now here comes the command because of that let us hold fast our confession the second one, because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, grasp it. Then comes the command, let us then or therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. True boldness, true confidence in prayer comes from understanding Jesus as our high priest. And in our fight of faith, there is nothing that we are more desperate for every day than that we may find and receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need there is a judge and he just said every person is naked exposed before him he knows everyone and everything comprehensively and then he says 
there's an answer to that problem. God has given us a high priest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What a text. So let's pull back and think for a moment. The scripture is clear. Jesus was not plan two or plan three in God creating the world. He, he, he purposed from the foundation of the world to send His Son to become one of us, a human being, in order to save sinners. From the beginning. Okay, so ask the question. Why didn't He send Him right after the fall? Well, you said, well, he wanted sin to be more evident. Okay, he certainly did that up till Noah's day. And then God killed every human being on the planet, except for eight. After that, why didn't he send him the next generation after Noah? Or a few hundred years later, after he made a covenant with Abraham, why did he let another 500 years go by and still not send Jesus, but then called Moses to deliver the people and to give to Moses the law and the sacrificial system? Why did he do that? Why did he wait so long? Almost 2,000 years between Abraham and Christ. One of the clear biblical answers to that question is because he, God, was laying foundational categories that would make sense of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And it was set. And then in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So that when Jesus came and the gospel of His life, His death, and His resurrection, and that there is salvation in no one else but Him, would go from the Jews to the rest of the world also, it went with a book. The book was settled. It was written. The book laid out the categories of how you are to understand the one true God, Yahweh, and understand His holiness, and understand your sinfulness, and understand redemption, and propitiation, and the forgiveness of sins. It was all settled. In other words, the Bible has the answers. Particularly when I say Bible at that point, we mean Old Testament. It has the answers to the biggest questions of life. Like how can I find atonement for my sins so that at death I can face God and not be condemned? When God is softening the hearts of People to receive the clear answers to those kinds of questions. It's a sad thing when any of us 
who proclaim to be Christians don't know the answers. Don't know the Bible answers to give to those people. And when we don't, and it happens a lot, even from pulpits, Jesus is recontextualized, not in a biblical context. He's relativized. Forgiveness is relativized. Because we abandon the book that explained who Jesus is and what he did even before he came. But God wanted the answers to be so clear that he took a few thousand years to develop the context which would interpret why the Son of God came and what he actually accomplished. That's one of the reasons for the history of Israel and for the temple sacrificial system in the priesthood. Clear categories and answers are all over the Hebrew Scriptures. And sometimes there's a family member or a loved one or someone on their deathbed that is tired of shallow, relativistic answers who's desperate, please tell me what the Bible says. And then you do. And you tell them the Bible is clear. There's a just God who is perfectly holy. And you and all of us are born into sin. And that sin created a massive barrier between you and your Creator. But God made provision in history, picturing it through Israel and the Aaronic priesthood. He made a mediator and a way to approach. And it was all for the purpose to picture when He would send His Son, the one true mediator between God and man, who on His bloody cross would bridge that gap so that God would happily uphold His justice in forgiving anybody who would receive His Son. Satisfaction. For sins has been paid by Jesus of Nazareth, the substitutionary sacrifice. If we try to skip the Old Testament context and interpret Jesus only within our own context, which even the New Testament doesn't do that, it is constantly interpreting Jesus from the context of the Old Testament. If we do that, and many try to do that, to try to do church that way, then they end up turning Jesus into a New Age guru or a present psychotherapist or a postmodern relativist. And thus they miss the meaning of his life, 
and his death and his resurrection. And so, all that to say, one of those categories that God so patiently endured is the category of high priest. Look at verse 14. Since then, we have a, and I love this modifier, great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. And so, yes, Moses' brother Aaron was the first high priest. He was a mediator between the people and God. And Aaron and his fellow priest offered sacrifices on behalf of the people daily. All kinds. Burnt offerings. Sin offerings. Free will offerings. Grain offerings. Day in and day out. And the book of Leviticus lays out in painstaking detail the procedure of how to do this. And any human additions or innovations to the process meant instant death. Like Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, found out when they offered unauthorized fire, God killed them. But then, there's only one high priest. One high priest at a time. And only once a year does that high priest on the Day of Atonement go into the most holiest of place with the Ark of the Covenant in the mercy seat in the golden cherubim. And if he goes in there behind the veil improperly or at any other time, then he would die. The high priest goes in there and sprinkles the blood of the animal on the mercy seat. And if he comes out alive, it means it's received and the sin of the people has been covered another year. And with that as a backdrop, verse 4 tells us Jesus is our great high priest. And unlike every other high priest in history who lived and then died, Jesus lived and then died and then rose from the dead never to die again. It's all over verse 4 if you read it slowly. Since then, we have, present tense, A.D. 62. We have now, not we had, and then died. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. 
This refers to Jesus' post-resurrection ascension as He rose through the clouds and is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is why the, the whole Old Testament system of the priesthood and the sacrificial system is over. Jesus is the reality to which the whole system was only a type. It was a shadow. It was, it was pointing to the one. Jesus never took the blood of bulls and goats into the earthly holy of holies. Nor into the heavenly holy of holies. He took His own blood. The blood of the Creator God the Son in His true humanity. This is how the writer of Hebrews says it in chapter 9. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And that's why the gospel, which means good news, says to us, if you embrace this high priest, Jesus, the Messiah, then when God sees this sacrifice He made for your sins, He says to you, it's enough. The debt has been paid in full. He says to you, God, the Holy One, says to you, my righteousness is vindicated in forgiving you. That's the cross. And then we get this really encouraging description of Jesus, our high priest, in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Another way to say that is this. Don't, don't buy the lie that would say something like this. Well, you know, Jesus is so exalted he can't relate to me and to my struggles and to my problems he says Jesus can sympathize with us in our weaknesses precisely because he became one of us and thus he was tempted in his humanity, just as we are. Yet, he never gave in to it. Without sin, 
He is our sinless high priest. So watch out for that de deceptive thought that would say, Jesus' sinlessness, that would make him unsympathetic. Distant from me, a sinner. I, I think... A fellow sinner can relate to me better than Jesus who never sinned. I want to commend to you the following words from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Baptist preacher in London in the 19th century. He said it this way. Do not imagine that if the Lord Jesus had sinned, he would have been any more tender toward you. Because sin is always of a hardening nature. If the Christ of God could have sinned, he would have lost the perfection of his sympathetic nature. It needs perfectness of heart to lay self all aside and to be touched with a feeling of the infirmities of others. And then there's one other deceptive thought that needs to be avoided. And that is this. If Jesus never sinned, well, then he must not have been tempted to the degree that we are. To that, C.S. Lewis, in mere Christianity, responded this way. Quote, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. End quote. Jesus can sympathize with all of us in our pain, in our dying, in our temptation because He experienced excruciating pain as a human being. He entered all the way into death. And he knew the temptation of hunger and thirst and tiredness and an unjust trial and being mocked and laughed at and punched and spit into his face and distrusted by friends and betrayed. He knew the temptation 
to murmur. The temptation to turn that rock into bread when the father was not directing him to do so. Take revenge. Gloat over them. Sin, Jesus. He knew the battle. He fought it all the way every time to the end. And so he experienced the depth of temptation to an extent that none of us can relate to because we give in. And then it's gone for the moment. We fall to the ground and that wind doesn't hit us now. And he stood the full force of the hurricanes. This high priestly ministry of Jesus in our context That is the basis. It's the foundation of our holding fast to our faith by drawing near in prayer. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. The confession is simply our unshakable hope in the gospel. That's how the writer puts it in chapter 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And so here he says to every one of us believers, hold fast. Because you have a great high priest. Okay. That's the first conclusion the writer draws from Jesus' high priestly ministry. But now then, practically, what do we do to hold fast this That's the point of verse 16. Let us, therefore, with confidence, draw near, move toward, come near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Every one of us needs help. We're not God. We have needs. We have sin. We have weaknesses. We have confusion. We have limitations of all kinds. We all need help. And yes, none of us deserves that help. But that's why the gospel is good news. It says we have a great high priest And the throne of God is a throne of grace. And the help that we get 
when we come there to the throne is mercy and grace. And particularly in our times of need. Okay, so what do we do? The answer is clear. Christians, day after day, draw near to the throne of grace. And now what he tells us in that text, he tells us why to do it. He tells us when to do it. He tells us how to do it. And he tells us what the goal is supposed to be when we do it. So let's look at him. Why should we draw near? The answer in the text is because we're weak. And our high priest Jesus, he's a sympathetic high priest. We don't come to God and open our heart because we pretty much have it all together right now. We come precisely because we're broken. We're undone. We're dependent. We're desperately weak. As Jesus said to all of his disciples, without me, you can do nothing. So here's the great thing. When we come to the throne of grace with our sympathetic high priest, we can know he doesn't ridicule us for our weaknesses, for our sin, for our stupidity. But he welcomes us like a father welcomes his little five-year-old boy, wraps his arms around him and protects him from some danger. Draw near, particularly in your weakness. Particularly when you sense you're utterly needful. It's that second. When should we draw near? That's it. Whenever you need help. And in reality, we always need help. The, the reality is the main reason we don't pray and we don't press in in exper experimental communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is because we don't realize how needy we are. Now, in the biblical context, I think that's why verses 12 and 13 come right before this passage. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. And it's able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. All are exposed to him. We're desperate for living the word so that it 
comes into us and it constantly exposes our weaknesses and awakens us to our needs constantly so that then in 14 to 16, we come and we draw near. Third, how? How shall we draw near? The answer is, we should do so with confidence. Confidence, boldness. Not through your local parish priest or through your evangelical pastor, but through Jesus Christ himself. Every believer has a personal access to Jesus, the high priest, in order to draw near to God's throne. And therefore, we don't dare come on our own merit or our own righteousness. But we come with a confidence that this high priest went into the Holy of Holies, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood as our substitutionary sacrifice. And that's what purchased our confidence and our entry and our access to mercy and grace with our Creator. We're clean if you're a believer. We're forgiven. You have been justified. Jesus' perfect human righteousness lived for 30 some odd years has been put to your account and your sin was put to Jesus' account and slaughtered by God the Father on the cross. Every time we go to the Father and find mercy and grace. It is owing and only owing, not to you did better this week, but owing to the atoning sacrifice of our great high priest. That's how you go. Confidence that's banked on another. Our Lord Jesus, the high priest. And finally, when we go, why are we going? What's the goal? It's right there in the text. Do not miss it. When we draw near, we do so in order to get. Period. Not to give. God doesn't have any needs. He doesn't need anything you think you can give Him. He's eternally needless. We go, according to verse 16, read it, in order that we may 
receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That grace isn't just some weird idea. That grace is powerful. And that, that grace infuses the believer by the, the activity of the Holy Spirit. So what a promise. Renew your mind with 12 and 13, the living Word of God, let it cut. And you renew your mind with the Word of God specifically, in other words, get your mind straight on this point. When you come, you won't be scolded for having needs. We won't be told that our needs are too trivial for such an important high priest. We'll find needed grace to help. So the Christian life, say this way, the life lived of all those who are actually saved by Jesus is not, okay, thank you. I got saved now. I'll go off and do my life. See you in heaven, Lord. That's not Christianity. Christianity is a life of desperate dependence on God's infusing His power by grace. It is a life of desperately coming to realize your sinfulness more and more and drawing near and being utterly dependent like a little child to his father. We have a high priest. And the outcome of our life is settled in the gospel. It will be eternal life with perfect happiness in the future, in the resurrection. But from here, right now, until we die, it's a massive trial. Trial, and tests, and tears, and fears. Paul put it this way in Romans 8. And if you're children of God, then you're heirs. You're heirs of God and you're joint heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him in the future. For I, Paul, consider the sufferings of this present time that they are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Hold fast the confidence of that hope. And all along the way in this world, we are weak. We are desperate people for intimate communion with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit who will supply the particular help that we need in just 
the right time. I don't normally do this, but what I want us to do is close our eyes. Close our eyes. And now, one more time, hear the voice of the great high priest through the scripture. One more time. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For dear ones, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us stand and draw near. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love whoever lives and pleads for me 